No subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome back to another edition of BOA Audio. It's kind of uh, it's dreary tonight, stormy weather here in Boston, and uh, I was having some technical problems earlier, so hopefully we don't have any going further, but that's what kind of things happen on, it's uh, 6-6, 6-6-17, we kind of planned all this out. Because our guest is the incomparable icon of cryptozoology and uh, really uh, one of the premier researchers of the oddities of the twilight language. I'm not sure how much we'll get into that tonight, but we've talked about it in the past on the show. And of course, he is the man behind the proprietor of the International Cryptozoology Museum, which is an absolutely fantastic place. And uh, by now, I'm sure you've heard about it. It is just amazing. And we're going to be talking about that tonight, too. Of course, I am talking about the incomparable... Lauren Coleman, welcome back to the show, my friend. Well, it's great to be here, Tim, and hopefully um, I'll live up to all of those, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, uh, because I've been working so hard, I'm so tired, I'm going to be able to just barely get through this two hours and three hours or four hours, whatever it is with you. I have you down for a couple. I hope they're good. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's the man, folks. You all know that, and uh, you know he's he's uh, he's behind the International Cryptozoology Museum. Let's start with that because that's that's your baby. I know you really want to talk about that because it's absolutely awesome. And uh, I'm a little hurt. I, you, somebody asked you on Twitter the other day, like if, if you ha- if I had been there, you thought I hadn't. I've been there twice. I was there when uh, the first week it opened, the very first place. I have the well, I have I, the grand opening week shirt or something. Still, I don't think it oh, would yeah, fit. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if it right. would fit, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the person asked me, and I think it must have been like 2 a.m. in the morning, that my mind was kind of foggy. So, uh, yeah, and you just recently came there with uh, George Sippel. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, Detroit Tigers writer, so that was a great visit. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me just say, uh, the museum has been in existence since 2003. I was trying to do my math because in 2009 we moved downtown, and we just last year moved to the new building that we bought out on Thompson's Point. And mm-hmm. Thompson's Point is a, a new entertainment venue where there's a, a brewery next door to us. And then next door to that, there's a winery. On, on the other side, there's a distillery. Yeah. There's going to be the uh, – and there's outdoor concerts there. And 
there's going to be a hotel and a children's museum. So it's it's the new in place for Portland. So it's great to get on the ground floor last year, and so we're kind of getting used to being there because it's uh, it's just amazing. Our yeah, it really our, is. It's, oh, go ahead. I mean, you know, just number of people finding us is, is just increased tremendously. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, I'm I'm just so happy for you because I remember, like I said, when it first opened, it was like in the back of a bookstore, and it's just exploded. It's really exploded into this real uh, destination. That's probably the best way yeah. to put it. I mean, people from all over the world come to check this place out, and I'm I'm glad that it's got this awesome new location that's befitting, uh, you know, its reputation. So I'm I right, couldn't be happy, right. and I loved my visit there, and I'm I'm hoping to come up there. How's this for a segue? I'm hoping to come up there for Labor Day weekend for the big conference. Tell us about oh, that. Oh, good. Yeah, that would be good. Well, you know, like, just like um, we already sort of planned, if you build it, they will come. And that really did happen. And so part of that is we've started having uh, annual conferences. Last year we did it in St. Augustine, Florida. Yeah. That worked out pretty well, but we wanted to make, the first conference really a big deal uh and you know it was expensive and we we never made any money but we're non-profit so you know we got some nice donors and that was good well this year we wanted to do it in new england and what better place to do it than right in portland yeah so um it's going to be at the hotel that's literally one-tenth of a mile from the museum so that we can actually use the museum to give tours there we're going to have a a chainsaw demonstration of making a Bigfoot, you know, with a, a tree log uh, and, and different things like that. But the conference is going to be all day on Sunday, the, um, the 3rd of September. So people can have days to travel in and they can have days to leave, uh, you know, the Monday of Labor Day. Yeah. So it, it just is kind of a good time. And then a lot of students go back to school. A lot of people really kind of get back into their work mindset and they're not vacationing anymore but we're going to have um different people talking about different things you know some of them is going to be on, like on ape canyon is there a, a supernatural part of ape canyon uh, we're definitely a zoological biological based museum but we have to be open to all kinds of explanations and theories because people want to talk about it uh, that Bruce Champlain, who's never given a, he's done a lot of writing and he's done a lot of researching on lake monster types. He's never really given a conference presentation, so I think that's a clue to have somebody that's been doing things in the field for so long. And then just uh, all kinds of different people. You know, I, I can go over and over it, but people can through our website, they can find the link, and we're going to have all day presentations, and then at night. We're going to have the East Coast premiere of Seth Breedlove's new movie, uh, The Mothman of Point Pleasant. Ah, nice. Yeah, I think that'll be cool. There's also a couple of film surprises that I'm not going to even talk about online. Yeah. Uh, You know, something from Europe and something from uh, someplace else. Just kind of use that last evening session. We're not sure if we're going to get popcorn yet, but we're going to make it fun. And uh, and then the next day, of course, with the chainsaw def- um, chainsaw demonstration for those people who want to hang around. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, that's happening. 
I didn't even know it until this week, but Thompson's Point is going to have an expressive dance uh, presentation that's going to be going on at the same time. Interesting. We're going to have like 10 food trucks, so it's going to be one of those kind of outdoor venues that happen at uh, Thompson's Point sort of without anybody really knowing about it. We have a lot of concerts like Elvis Costello and stuff coming, but uh, no concerts that weekend, but it's going to be dance and chainsawing and Bigfoot and all kinds of things like that. Nice, nice. Wow. Well, I talk to a lot of people all the time, and uh, and all the time, I you know, because I'm from here, and I always mention the museum and how they should come and check it out. And, and so many people are always like, oh, I really got to go. I really want to see it. I really, you know, I'm definitely going to go there someday. Folks, go that weekend. That's the perfect time to go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's, I, um, I really do talk to a lot of people, and they say, oh, I really want to go there. I really want to go there. It's like... I know, you know. Always, a lot of people say it's on my bucket list. I just have never made it there. Well, that's why we even started extending our hours on uh, Fridays and Saturday nights and afternoons because people were saying, well, we went by and it's closed. Well, that's no excuse anymore. Even that weekend, we're going to extend hours into the 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock hour because there's going to be so many people around. And uh, even the Sea Dogs are in town, so maybe some people will want to go to the Sea Dogs game too. Well, I'm gonna do my damn best to be up there. I promise. So. Uh, oh, good, good. I, I I'd like to make it an, an annual thing that I get up there because it's only a couple hours for me. But, you know, you got to find somebody to go with you. So it's that's half the that's half the trouble yeah, for, I'm, I'm, for a creep I'm like me. Giving, I'm already giving out uh, media credentials, and you certainly earned that. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So what, what's what we, and we have the website. Here or let me see, you know well, I'm sure. Cryptozoologymuseum.com. There you go. And that has all the info. But like I was saying, yeah, has so many people say they want to come and check it out. So this is the time. To, they're rolling out the red carpet for you, folks. So go up there and do it. Thanks, Tim. And Thanks. I'm, I, you know, something. I know a few people around here, so I'll know. I'll have somebody. <laughs> I'll be like, we're going. That's it. Enough, enough talk. Enough talk. Talk about it, man. We're gonna go. So and uh, we do have uh, tickets on sale, and they change to a little bit higher price after July 15th. So we really encourage people uh, because they are actually selling. I mean, we're not doing that. You know, if you've got to buy them today, or they'll all be gone. But certainly, they are selling pretty rapidly. Well, pick them up, folks. Definitely, definitely. Uh, now we'll get into the into the into the esoteric talk here because I know people want to hear that. I'm. I'm interested in uh, – I, I emailed you today about this because I've been following the news a lot in the last year, as you know, so I've kind of become a news hound in this field. And I'm really interested in sort of the the reemergence of the Tasmanian tiger over the last year and and now, which is culminating, I guess you could say, with this search, this 50-plus uh, game camera search that's being conducted by uh, an Australian university in in the hinterlands of Australia, where the where the Tasmanian tiger may lurk. So, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Give me the breakdown. You're the expert. I mean, should I? I saw that also. There's this mathematical model that's like there's almost no chance it's still around, but I don't trust that. I'm pulling for the underdog here. Well, uh, this I think his name is Professor Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, and he he's going to do trail cams, and I I read one thing that he's interested in really looking 
looking in the northern part of Tasmania, um, where we're pretty sure most of us have been, you know, there's different reports that come in from Tasmania, but there's been real negative sort of feeling about Tasmania for a long time. There's there's really an overuse of the land. There's uh, too many trees are being cut down. And once you start seeing the habitat of these animals disappearing, it's almost nostalgia to go looking for it in the same old place. What I've been getting from a lot of uh, my Australian friends and, and everybody else in that end of the world uh, that Western Australia is much better territory because there's uh, there's still a lot of trees and wood wilderness areas and there has been over 400 sightings in the Western Australian area and that probably will be the better places. So I'm hoping Lawrence, Professor Lawrence, really branches out if he gets enough funding and that's always the that's always the key. How much funding, you know, is it going to be more than just a, a weekend? jaunt or is it going to be able to uh, sustain something for a few months because that's where you'll find the animals and you got to get friendly with the locals because the locals don't care they you know a lot of them feel that the the tigers out there we don't care if you come and look for it or not and that recent movie remember the William Defoe movie a few years ago yeah it really it really was about that the locals know the things out there and these people from away that come in and want to either shoot it or film it or whatever really are not treated too too much friendly. Yeah. Now my my uh, my baseline sort of secret notion here is that I think the historical range of the thylacine extends all the way to New Guinea, and New Guinea is still the place where we're finding new species and new animals. Yeah. I wa- I'm wondering if the thylacine won't eventually someday be found in New Guinea, and everybody's looking in the wrong place. Well, just uh, New to... Guinea's very dangerous, but you know, still, it could be there. Yeah. Well, just to clear this up, he's actually going to be in, in, doing the expedition in, in the uh, on the Cape York Peninsula, which is like the tip of northern Australia. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Rather than Tasmania, so it's. I mean, I don't know. I'm excited, though. I mean, it's good that there's an academic interest to try this. I mean, I think if they somehow get a picture of the thylacine, that could change everything in a lot of ways, I hope, because then maybe a bunch of American universities will be like, hey, let's get out there with gay cameras and get Bigfoot. Yeah, well, you know, there there just was a new uh, exposure of a a photograph that went around in 2015 It turned out was a a very ancient, you know, a 1930s photograph that somebody had superimposed on a more recent landscape. I saw that, yeah. I so, saw that. so I, I think that I still would have a problem with he. All he came back with was, uh, you know, trail cam or a photograph because we really need DNA. We, you know, and it doesn't have to be DNA from a dead body. It can be a DNA from the saliva that a thylacine would leave on a a prey animal. Mm, yeah. So there's 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 different ways to get the DNA, and we we definitely have enough bodies. We have the DNA of the thylacine, so um, hopefully that he'll get something like that, and and we won't have a kind of a gray area, uh, almost like an episode of Finding the Thylacine or something. Yeah. Where you know, put the tri- put the uh, trail cams out every night. He checks them, and it, you know, there's nothing there. 
<laughs> because I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be a documentary made of this. There's yeah, he said two channels are trying to uh to film right. for it. And um well, I think hey, if he if he if he gets a picture, I think it'll be better than just some random picture that shows up online. At least then he'll probably be able to go back there maybe and do more, God knows what. But it's like as as sad as it is, it's like the people weigh evidence differently. So if he comes, if him and, and, the, and the project comes back with a picture, it's like I don't think a lot of people are going to say it's doctored. I mean, some people will, but it's like, why would this guy do that? That's crazy. Right. No, not so much doctor, but just that kind of ungray. Oh well, he got the eyes and the shape of the right, the right, there, yeah. but, but but he didn't get it all. So maybe yeah. we do. Oh yeah, because yeah, yeah. Lot, the skepticism in this field is extremely high. Right, right, exactly. I was thinking about that today, actually, because it's like if he did get the picture, your first instinct is to be like, it's alive. But then it's like you got to prove it. Like it just, the picture just says, hey, you know, we're probably right, but we got to – now we got to really drill down and get it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, and like um, tonight on uh, Animal Planet, I was flipping the channels, and I saw that there was a documentary on the thylacine, these two people going out looking for the thylacine. And I waited all the way to the end to see that it was done in 2015. And, of course, as I was watching the whole thing, it was like, this is day 11, and they haven't seen it, so they're going to stay one more night because this could be the night that they actually take a photograph of it. And I was thinking, yeah, we would have already heard about this. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so if this guy, you know, Professor Lawrence, signs with a documentary film company, we're not going to hear about it for six months after uh, he gets back, so hopefully. Well, yeah, I thought about that. Yeah, one would assume because then he'd want to roll it out in some peer-reviewed paper in a journal somewhere, right. and you know, it's like well, the, the money and shit. The the production company wouldn't want him to come back and have a news conference, and <sighs> you know, they want build up the suspense in the film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll hear about it like in November around sweeps. That's probably when. That's probably when we'll know if, if he got if it. That's, if, if that's when sweeps is in Australia. Oh, that's true. Yeah, whenever November sweeps is. Um, but what do you make of like how it's how this Tasmanian tiger's like become the new it thing in the last like year? Have you noticed it, or am I just am I just seeing like every blue car after I buy a blue car kind of thing? Yeah, I I definitely think it's a reflective factor for you because you know Bigfoot is still very hot in some corners, and then. Uh, you know, other different things. I think it's just, it's one of those things that for, it's a, a nine-day wonder. Uh, everybody's talking, or at least some people are talking about the thylacine. And uh, everybody is so tired of politics. They're, oh God, looking, yeah. they're looking for something exciting from the animal world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> humans have disappointed us so badly. Absolutely. So I've been noticing that every time there's uh, – and actually I wrote the other day about how the overuse of the word breaking news oh, God, on, all awful. The on the channels. So if you get a story about a Black Panther in Georgia, which just came out a couple of days ago, everybody's going to talk about a Black Panther sighting in the South for a while because – they're hoping that it will get everybody off the trend of talking about, you know, Russia or some or some recent, you know, stabbing at Notre Dame or something. So exactly. it's, it's it's just amazing how people are are absolutely on such adrenaline highs that they now are doing that with cryptozoology. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good 
that's a great segue to the other thing that's really got my attention uh, over the last year, and this is the uh, the creepy clowns. Now I know you know I know you think this is something that's come along. This is sort of like become a phenomenon. So it's not it's not like uh, it's not like I'm ima- I'm not imagining this. I hope. <laughs> what do you make of of the creepy clown explosion and how they're now kind of coming back? I I think it's like seasonal in a sense. Like it's getting warmer out. People are going to be outside more, and you're going to see more of these idiots doing stuff. <laughs> well. I definitely um, would have to agree that the media, the media is the source of what becomes important on the media. It's you know it's a self-reinforcing cycle. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 1981, I coined the word "phantom clowns" because in the Boston area, started in the Boston area for me, and then. It was remember 1981. You have to really think back. There was no internet. There was no emails. Right. There were only letters, and there wasn't even very good uh, photocopy machines. There was thermal fax. There was all kinds of different things like that. So for myself, as a 40 and as one that investigated unknown phenomena. I noticed this trend in Providence. I noticed it in Cambridge, in you know Roxbury, and in Boston. That the that the children were saying that they were seeing these clowns that got close to them but never captured them. Right. They were riding in vans. There were stories about them not wearing any pants. They only had clown costumes from you know, from the waist up, but they were in vans. So how people saw that, I never could figure that out. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and then I, I, so what I did is I wrote all of my friends across the country. I wrote them letters and I said, please send me clippings if you get any reports of clowns. And before I knew it, I started hearing from Kansas City, from Omaha, you know, Chicago. I mean, it started coming to me that there was actually a national phenomena going on that nobody in any of the national wire services was doing that. So, you know, all of a sudden, let's go forward until last year. What happened last year was very much a repeat of that, except add the Internet, add emails. And so what occurred was in the Carolinas, you started having children in schools or in housing projects or whatever, seeing these clowns, saying that they were trying to lure them into the woods, and then um, none of the adults saw them. None of the uh, police people could capture them. And then it started jumping, jumping to Georgia, jumping to Arkansas, jumping to Louisville, and the phantom clowns, and, the, and I even wrote an article or blog uh, about the classifications because phantom clowns is a very specific, they're not a, you know, creepy clown came later last year, but they were first and foremost phantom clowns. But then what occurred was people started imitating these clowns ah, yes. or what I, what I call stalking clowns where actual real people would put on outfits and they'd get photographed. They'd go close to people. They'd appear on streets with balloons. Uh, They'd chase people on bridges. And those started showing up. And 
and they it just exploded around the world. <laughs> and of course, England gave us a whole different version of clowns called killer clowns, which be, became more violent. These yes. were more violent reports of clowns. And so then they disappeared. They disappeared almost immediately after Halloween last year. Mm-hmm. It just it went from having four or five reports in the news to zip, yeah. zero. But then what's occurred this year is the phantom clowns haven't come back. The stalking clowns haven't come back. What we're actually getting back are killer clowns, including an actual first case. Uh, and this was out in Denver of a man who uh, had knives or some kind of... Uh, the Freddy Krueger glove. Yeah, the, right, exactly. And he killed somebody yeah. at a, a location in Denver. And then there's been two or three other incidents where people have got hurt. And it's a much more violent situation. And, you know, there's a little bit of the Joker in it, a little bit of the, uh, you know, kind of it is coming back, the movie it is being rebooted. Yeah. So people are throwing all of that into all of the stories. And it, luckily it's not spreading fast. And there's, I've only been able to document, I think, four cases. It's not like the, I mean, literally it must have been 150 cases. Yeah, uh, it was from crazy. Last year. Yeah. It yeah. Was, it was, yeah. I mean, it was a national, international phenomenon, but like people were, it was all over the news and everything. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely did not seek any media interviews, but because I'd done that work in 1981, Rolling Stone, you know, New York papers, all of these people just showed up out of the woodwork to interview me about the phantom clown phenomenon. It was the most publicity I've ever got about clowns. I (laughs) should hope so. Yeah. Yeah. But it it was just, uh, and, you know, good old uh, Ben Radford's the one that wrote a book about it last year. And, he, you know, he got a few interviews, but I think I got more than him. There you go. <laughs> he was disappointed. Yeah, well, who likes a who likes a party pooper when it comes to clowns? Right. <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. I think uh, I, I just noticing the news all the time now. Um, people are just not staying with the the clowns for very long. Yeah, they're going to no, go no. on to something else. Yeah. It's uh, now it just seems like unhinged people are. It's like not even. Oh yeah. It's yeah, moved on from it. like the the people the you know teenagers who think it's funny to just like like crazy people essentially sticks <laughs> out of the bottom of the barrel I guess. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I mentioned the sort of the classification. Yeah, so you're saying kind of like the phantom clowns is sort of like the more ephemeral, elusive sort of like people see them and then they're gone and then the uh, yeah. There's absolutely no evidence other than the sightings. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then the stalking clowns are just normal people that are taking advantage of the clown phenomena. And then the killer clowns, the I mean, there ones. were people getting bats and different things like that in, in England last year. Then it's jumped to really violence. But uh, but I, I really think that the, one, the piece of news that every news organization is waiting for is the the most recent terrorist attack. And so that's the phantom clowns of this year. It's, you know, where's the bomb or where's the car ramming somebody or where's the stabbing going in on what church? And that seems to be the media is much more interested in that than waiting around for clown stories. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You hope that, yeah, 
you hope that this this sort of string of things it's already sort of becoming a string of things, so you worry that it's like leading to something, you know, escalating. It's very nerve wracking, you know. And it is kinda of like what I said about the clowns too in a way, where it really is like the warmer weather. That's when these bad things happen. You don't see a lot of clowns out there, you don't see as many like of these crazy events it seems. What do you make actually of the did you see this thing that was floating around that all these events seem to happen with a twenty two in it or something like that? Did you see that? meme that went around yeah uh, yeah i saw that meme it, it, it's really very pretty bad research i mean you can it is the reflective and i, I saw a, a skeptical article about it very quickly after that i think even snoops or whatever snoop whatever he's you know but he actually <laughs> yeah. he came out and said uh you can look at a series of dates for the terrorists and everybody will look at the 22s but I mean, elevens come up, or seven seven, or and not too many six sixes, but just yeah, you know, it it just gets in people's head, and I don't think there's really too much to the twenty two. All right, that's good. To know. But I do think, I I mean, I wrote in my copycat effect book, which came out in two thousand and four. Uh, I wrote in depth in there and said that terrorists love the attention, and the media is reinforcing it. It's it's a phenomenon that is driven by the media for the media. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's, it's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and that's hasn't changed as far as now what the electronic media and the cable networks and cable news networks just, that's why this whole, the, the useless phrase breaking news now just means nothing. Uh, and it just, it, they need something every day so they can put breaking news underneath the, uh, the title of the, the little scroll. It's it's worthless. Yeah. Well, I noticed like CNN, they do it on the hour, every hour when they start the right. next show or whatever. And then they just tell you what the news is. And it's like, it's not right. breaking news. He talked, he talked about it for the whole last hour. Like, yeah, but it, it's on Fox and it's on uh, oh, MSNBC yeah. too. And I was thinking to myself today, well, what if there's a uh, a presidential assassination? Are, are they going to put double breaking news? I yeah, mean, exactly. Yeah. How do you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. They, yeah, they've they've completely they've obliterated the meaning of breaking news. So how will we even know? Right. Yeah, right. It's weird. But anyway, back to Back to cryptozoology, yeah. I, I, you know, definitely there are some breaking news, like the, the discovery that there's really four species of flying squirrel in America, uh, that, that they actually, one of them had been hiding in plain sight. They had classified the northern uh, flying squirrel as one species and very very interestingly, the Humboldt flying squirrel exists in the Pacific Northwest. It's a very distinctive flying squirrel, and I think those kinds of breaking news where we find new new animals and new discoveries like that uh, really impact on the whole field because as I was uh, talking to some people about that, you look at the range of that new squirrel and exactly it matches in the Pacific Northwest where the best Bigfoot reports come from. Really? There's a, uh, yeah, there's an ecosystem there of, you know, redwoods and sequoias and wilderness areas where that squirrel has survived and 
is biologically DNA isolated from the whole other squirrels, flying squirrels that are around it. And so there must be something going on that that species feels extremely, like on an island, a, a DNA island. Hmm. And so that, I've always said, you know, a lot of people say, you know, there's Bigfoot in Rhode Island or, you know, in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. That's fine and good. I really see that as a um, a shadow Bigfoot, uh, the sociology of Bigfoot, that there's Bigfoot seen in every state. And, yeah, and it yeah. has a lot to, lot to do with everybody wants to see a Bigfoot. Everybody hears uh, things in the woods. But absolutely the best stories, the best native stories, the best evidence comes from the Pacific Northwest. And so that's where I think we're going to find Bigfoot and all of the rest of this is, is entertaining, interesting, and worth pursuing, but it doesn't mean you should get frustrated when you, you know, kick around in the mountains of western Massachusetts and all <laughs> you find are, are ticks on your legs. You know? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, man, that's the last thing you want to find. <laughs> that's yeah. like the very last uh, thing, yikes. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so... I'm interested. I'm antsy, you know. I've been in this for a long time. You've been in this like four times as long as I have. I don't know how you can handle it any longer. Like, not. I want this Bigfoot, man. <laughs> I've had enough. I want. I want well, this mystery solved. Well, you know, this—that's what I call the celebrity cryptids. The, you know, the Loch Ness monster, the sea serpents, the the Yeti, and the Bigfoot. Everybody—that's the holy grail for some people, and they just feel totally frustrated all the time and antsy because they can't find those. I'm absolutely satisfied. You know, three years ago, four years ago, we found a whole new species of tapir, the, the little prehensile nose creature in Brazil. Yeah. You know, we find new monkeys that are quite startling. You find a new species of bird in Central Park in New York City, or you find a new turtle in the a river in Mississippi or a giant uh, king crayfish in Tennessee. I'm excited by those discoveries all the time because it shows to me that right here in our midst, there's new animals and, and you don't have to go all the way to the Himalayas to, to look for the abominable snowman every day. You can really just, uh, you know, and support biologists and wildlife people and university, you know, individuals who are doing this, groundbreaking work so i'm excited and i love all of that stuff every day well that's good so you you're you're yeah you're okay with the bigfoot being out there or not i just you know i just feel like i wish i had if i ever like won the lottery that would be like my main thing i'd be like uh i i forget the name of the guy i'm sure you know like the super you know who was the super rich like industrialist or whatever that was uh, that sort of like funded a lot of Bigfoot research or something. Oh, Tom Slick. Yeah, that's Tom what Page, I would turn yeah. into Tom Slick. You know, yeah. that's how much I, I, uh, I'm after the Bigfoot. But what we talked about this last time you were on. It's interesting to talk about. We had Adam Davies on a few weeks ago, and he kind of touched on this too. This and you, like I said, you mentioned it a couple of years ago when we talked this uh, this new trend of like Bigfoot habituation stories and stuff like that. Is that still going on, or is that kind of like? still is, is it sort of like lessening since we last talked oh no no it's getting worse it's yeah. getting much worse yeah there's uh whole groups of people and I, I won't mention any names because 
you know everybody has a right to be an idiot. So, yeah. um, <laughs> but there's there's one guy that everybody is hating on out west, and he's saying things like he saved a group of Bigfoot that had come down on UFOs and oh, he put them back back up in the the woods of the Pacific Northwest, and and he's just making such a a silly mess of people that had clumbed around him almost in a cult-like behavior. And uh, some people that have even been pulled in by this individual, and then he all of a sudden says says things like, uh, you know, they're out there and I'm going to go communicate with them and, and do all of this other stuff. And and it's it's really become to some people so close to a cult that it's making other people – who are just new to Bigfoot thinking, oh my gosh, I can't be involved in this field because so-and-so has made this, you know, so stupid. So um, that's what I'm seeing is that it's, it's almost like uh, ufology was. In I was just going to say, sounds it. like ufology. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like ufology. Yeah. yeah. Because if you actually look at the amount of TV programs on TV, I think there's a, a ground level, uh, almost a foundation of, strange shows that are about ghosts but if you notice in the last 15 years there's been more and more almost an explosion of cryptozoological shows yes yes mountain monsters or monsters underground or that are fictionalized that are fictionalized they may use the real name of a creature like mapaguari but then they say it's in a cave in california which has never been reported in the literature so i think that is to me a demonstration that popular culture is taking hold of cryptozoology and bypassing the reality of it, whereas you don't hear about UFO shows doing that. You, you know, UFOs have really been left in the dust. Mm. Uh, and and yet these haunted shows or, uh, you know, collector or ghost hunters or I mean, there's so many different variations on the haunted shows that that seems to uh, have a life of its own and it keep keeps on going. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, UFOs seem antiquated now. It's like they're just kind of, they're just not, they're just old. They're just old. That's the, I can't know the way to really put it. There's like a dusty yeah. old phenomenon. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to Marie Jones about this last week. It's like... You must know how many of these. You probably don't because there's so many. But how many of these Bigfoot shows are on nowadays? Because it's like I can't even keep up with all these different shows. Yeah, I mean it was easily twelve, you know, two years ago. But then, then we have to be realistic too. Like, for instance, um, Finding Bigfoot is in its last season. Yeah, that was like, like the, that's like the Big Daddy. That's like the ghost hunter right. of, of Bigfoot right. stuff. But before that, there was uh, Unsolved Mysteries that was and that would have Bigfoot shows on it. Right. So now you have a lot of these fictionalized shows that last two, three episodes, and then they crash and burn. And and yet, setting where I am here in Maine with the International Cryptozoology Museum, I maybe get in one month get five inquiries from, you know, well, we're thinking about doing a cryptozoology show. And we'd like to call you up and talk to you for two hours and have you give us all of your leads and all of your ideas. <laughs> Which is really, and they really do. They really think that I'm going to just be there at their beck and call. But it tells me at least that people are still, you know, trying to get some of these shows greenlit 
and they're still trying to produce them. Um, it is interesting to me that there's so many superhero movies and there hasn't been uh, a like number of sort of 1950s sort of monster movies. They just haven't been coming along. So uh, maybe that'll catch up. Maybe that'll be the next trend. Yeah, well, I heard the Mummy movie. Uh, spoiler alert, folks. I heard the Mummy movie has like a cameo of the creature from the Black Lagoon or something, Mike, to build uh, another movie. So. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Now oh, half the people good. in the audience listening are like writing, furiously writing me an email being like, why'd you spoil that, man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like being told that you should stay – you should stay past the credits for a Marvel movie because there's hints about four other yeah. you know, things. <laughs> if people haven't figured that out yet, that there's going to be hints in these movies, then you need to grow up. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking today, too, uh, this is a timely fashion. You may not have anything to say about this, but I should say it so I don't have to just pollute my Facebook with it. But it's like you see all these uh, thought pieces about the Wonder, Wa- Wonder Woman movie, and it's like, oh, what does it mean? What does it mean? It's like... What it means is they should just make an original movie, like make a new movie. Don't make us the, the fourth movie of of the same characters we've seen a million times, and people will flock to the to the movie theater. Even if even though Wonder Woman's an iconic character, they've done it a million times. Like they haven't done a movie in ages. There's not really, I don't think, any sociological sort of explanation for anything like that. Well, it's pretty simple. Well, also Wonder Woman's about women, and they haven't made enough superhero movies about women you know that was well, that, that was yeah. a good thought yeah you mean like you didn't you don't want movie number seven on wolverine right exactly exactly <laughs> well it is interesting also that uh i mean although it, it always boggled my mind that spider-man we would have to see three new movies three movies about the the creation of spider-man again and again and again <clears throat> but um that that actually um, that a lot of these movies are killing off their characters so they can bring them back and for the next generation. Mm. You know, in, in 13 years when people forgot that they just saw that movie. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, back to the personal level here with me, mm-hmm. I, I've written some 40 books. Of those 40 books, there's only one book that has a movie option on it. It's the story of Tom Slick, the guy that you mentioned, mm-hmm. and about how I funded, funded. Uh, it's you know of all my books, it's the one that's the closest to a biography. So I tell about this rich Texas oil millionaire and how he sponsored the Yeti, um, you know, expeditions and the Bigfoot expedition. That's in been been in development hell for like twelve years. Oh wow! Uh, and early on, a guy named Nicholas Cage appeared in um, Variety newspaper saying that he'd more or less bought the rights for my movie and was going to make the Tom Slick movie. Then he went on to the Superman movie. Nicolas Cage never bought the rights to my movie. Somebody else did, and he's still working on it because he's passionate about these things. But I, of course, can't tell any of the audience or you about it, or I would be shot because that's non-disclosure thing. But to me, it says... There's all of these superhero movies that are keep being made, and somebody someday is going to settle down and say, "Hey, why don't we make the Abominable Snowman movie? Why don't we make a good Bigfoot movie?" And they haven't done that yet, and that would be an original story because 
everybody's just redoing comic books. I'm not saying anything against DC or Marvel. I like those movies as much as everybody else. But you're right. There's nothing original as far as the storylines and the characters. Yeah. Um, now, let me see. We had something else in the notes you were talking to me about. Um, yeah, well, it's interesting. It's just the whole – It's it's – the entertainment world is uh, very repetitive nowadays. It's very, very frustrating. Um, oh, I, I know. <laughs> I know what I was going to suggest. Actually, is the they, if they want to do a show, they they like characters and stuff. They should just do a show about you running the museum. And, <laughs> and I, just, I mean, I'm realistic enough. I've been approached several times in my history, and they get to the point and they said, "Oh my gosh." Uh, this guy has uh, white hair, and he's such and such age. I don't think that's a good demographic. Let's oh, move on. on. Get let's get a, a young man and a young woman, and you know, make them actors. Oh, oh, you mean like Josh Gates? I mean, Josh Gates is a good guy, and I've been with him and appeared with him and everything. But Josh Gates is an actor who has become uh, a host of these shows. Yeah, that's that's the ones that succeed. And if you really notice, I mean, Adam Davies, for instance, has been on a lot of shows, and mm-hmm. I've been on a lot of shows, but most of the time we're there's the expert or the authority or, you know, out on right. the expedition or, please, Lauren, could you walk through those woods again so we can get that shot again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm I'm very aware of, of the demographics and also – Running a museum is is pretty boring. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, it's it's exciting for me, and it's a good legacy. And I just spent, for instance, ninety minutes tonight recurating the Native American um, cabinet and a, a, uh, exhibit. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of things that I have to do because I get new materials and new material in all the time, and I want to showcase it. But it's not exactly. Uh, you know the museum coming alive at night, sort of thing. They, right, right. They 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 make things about. But uh, mysteries at the museum, for instance, which they've been to our museums eight times now. It's a very interesting show if you actually concentrate and focus on one item, and then build the story around that. That was a that is actually a model that really has worked for that show. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I was going to say, you know how they would do it is they'd hire like two. 20-something, you know, a guy and a, and a woman, and they'd say they were married and they were, like, worked there. And that was, they'd write, they'd write, you know, and you would, you would pop in, you know, at the beginning and the end of the episode and be like, no, nah, guys. And then, you know, right. it, would be, it would be about how they would get into a fight. Something, you know, it would be ridiculous. That's, That's right. how these shows work. And it's like, at the right. museum. And then they, they'd show a, a couple of customers coming to the desk and they'd say, here, we're buying your book. Would you please sign it? And I I sign it, then I say the the joke that I often do, which is, okay, I'm signing it, but I'm going to date it today because, you know, if I die tomorrow, the book will be worth more. And then everybody laughs, and they go off into the sunset. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Then they're like, yeah, then they cut back to some fight about how the, the, the actors had a, an argument about groceries or something, yeah. Right, right. Because I was recently with uh, Craig Woolheater uh, in out in Willow Creek. Yes. Yeah. It's been a very busy spring. I was actually in Willow Creek because this is the 50th year of Bigfoot. And, you know, the Finding Bigfoot crew was there and Bob Gimlin and Craig Woolheater. Craig Woolheater, he, he's 
very jealous of me always inventing words and coining words like, you know, a Montauk Monster, Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, you're the master of that. that. Yeah, you're the master. I tried to aspire to be like you with that stuff, yeah. So he said, I'm going to coin a word because you always write obituaries, Lauren. I'm going to call them crypto bit. It doesn't work, but, you know, his idea was to to crypto bits, yeah. That sounds like a cereal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, I told him it sounds because the word bits sort of separates itself. Most people wouldn't get the obits part of it, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah. On the other hand, uh, yeah, on, on the bright side, coming soon to the International Crypto Museum is uh, Crypto Bits, the cereal. We'll be able to roll that out at the Labor Day event. Right, right. Well, so you must have read my blog lately about serial killers with, spelled with a C. Oh, God. But anyway, that's um, sad. That, that term was actually coined by the FBI. Serial killers with a C? Yeah. yeah what is because that? Because there's lots of... Oh, there's lots of grains involved. There's lots of corn uh, involved and a lot of uh, the actual silly serial killers uh, motif and, oh, and weird. stuff. So it's, yeah, it's very deep, very deep. Like serial uh, killers? Okay, yeah, who kind of like maybe and, lurk, lurk in that, in the uh, well, agricultural actually, realm. As some people say, serial killers in a lot of this Twilight language really revolves around stories. So a lot of the killers really want some story to develop out of it. And if you look at, um, I mean, a lot of people don't understand how I can be interested in the Twilight language and cryptozoology, but a lot of the cryptozoology stories are very deep uh, with stories, like the whole Fred Beck and the Ape Canyon and his interest in spiritualism yeah. and, uh, and a lot of stuff like that. It's not just one thread that runs through these of, I went out, I saw this big hairy creature, and I came home and wrote it down. There's usually all of this other personality stuff that surrounds a lot of these stories. So that, uh, uh, I mean, when I I was uh, in school and in anthropology and zoology, it made a lot of sense, and it was pure physical creatures. But then I got deeper and deeper into it and saw that uh, to get a master's in psychiatric social work certainly would help because I was getting a lot of psychology thrown at me by a lot of eyewitnesses. Yeah. You know, they were, they were scared. They, they wanted to talk to me and tell me their stories because they needed to be uh, affirmed that they actually had a sighting. Uh, it became very, it's very much like um, that saying about all news is local. Yeah. It's very much all of these sightings are about the people. Oh, absolutely. They're not, yeah. They're not they're not having them so that they can be a community of individuals that's trying to prove something. They're really just experiencing on a very personal level and they're trying to interpret that. And it's has not and that's why they buy books or go to conferences or join support groups. It's so that they can really feel comfortable in their body and in their mind that they had this extraordinary incident occur to them. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense just from having sort of toiled in the UFO field. You get a lot of that there a lot. So as I can see how it sort of applies across the different spectrums of uh, of experience, you know, because very few people like – 
very few people seek this stuff out and actually experience it, you know, unless they're like kooky ghost hunters because they, you know, that's a different sort of realm. But you know what I mean. Most yeah, people who go out yeah. into the woods looking for Bigfoot don't end up seeing anything, you know. No, no, unless they go on one of these group things and then mysteriously <laughs> in the middle of, middle of the night there's, a, you know, some kind of wood knocking that occurs and then you find out that two members of the expedition had snuck away and done it themselves so they could get people to come back the next time. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, like, uh, luckily, I haven't been roped into anything like that. But it's like, is that sort of a? I suppose people have to pay to go on one of these experiences, right? So it's sort of like the draw. Oh, yeah, it's what I call crypto tourism and, and crypto exploitation, where people are paying as much as three hundred and fifty dollars to go on these uh, canned what? Bigfoot hunts. That's ridiculous. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's become a. a a social network. You know, people don't go to ice cream socials at churches anymore. They go out Bigfoot hunting, uh, and they expect to be entertained. There's usually a, some drinking going on, and there's lots of, uh, I'd say, high-end electronic equipment being thrown around. Yeah. And so they expect something to, you know, a pair of eyes or a sound in the night or you know, more than a coyote in the distance. And I'm not, you know, a lot, almost everybody I know is really reputable, but I have heard about and heard firsthand of individuals going on some of these hunts where they find out that some of the individuals that are taking in the money are also producing results so that people will feel positively reinforced to do it again. Because people go back year after year. Oh, God. Uh, and it, it's it's a social event. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, you see that with these Bigfoot con- – I mean, uh, you see that with these UFO conventions, too. It's a different sort of whole – different animal, but it's the same so- psychological structure in a lot of ways. You know, they they want to go back and, you know, see everybody they saw at last year's thing. So they're going to go and we're all going to meet again next year, that kind of thing. So, I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, the almost. Internet – the Internet – and Facebook is, is filled with people, you know, can I get my picture taken with uh, Bob Kimmel? Can I, you know, can I, you know, things like that. It's, it's, it's real. There's a celebrity group of individuals. I mean, the, the finding Bigfoot people, I, I like all of those individuals and they're, they're really good people, but they were just normal people. They got on TV and they're all now celebrities, and so they can go around the country, and it's kind of like lobbyists from, from uh, you know, Republican or, or Democratic parties where they can go around and give speeches and get $300,000. The Bigfoot field's not getting that kind of money, but you can cer- certainly know that individuals that were on TV for a long, long time are doing fairly well uh, and have become celebrities way beyond any kind of work that they've ever done in the field. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so, and as I've told a lot of media people for, I started telling people this 20 years ago, there is no funding. There are no Tom Slicks or Tom Pages or, or you know, any of those individuals during the 70s who were funding some of these expeditions. The number one funder of Bigfoot excursions is actually TV programs. Yeah. So so if you're hooked up with a TV program, 
you will make money, they will make money, and everybody's happy. And a lot of the audience doesn't realize that some of those executive producers on those programs are getting a quarter of a million dollars for that show. Oh, wow. So so it's, it's a lot. Uh, and none of the researchers, you know, the basic researchers, none of us writers, none of us people that have been in for a long, long time, uh, we're just barely able to keep ahead of our mortgages, let alone think we're going to get a new car or anything from doing any of this work. That was one of the things uh, 20 years ago when, you know, just kind of, well, maybe it was 15 years ago, when the Internet started, the big thing that uh, any writer like myself or author would jump on uh, the Internet to talk to people, and they would find that so many people thought that we were interested in talking to our readers because we wanted to sell more books like we were millionaires. And that was such a joke. And I'm glad that at least the Internet has matured to the place that people can enjoy talking to, you know, like um, the guy that does American Gods, um, Neil, you know, Damon, and not think that he's just trying to sell more books by talking to his fans. Well, you know, yeah, it's funny you say that because it's like only – it, well, maybe there are other fields. I don't know. But it seems like especially in the paranormal, it's like, uh, yeah, it, it, it seems like anyone who's trying to make a living or anything is immediately, like, vilified. It's like, this is the only right. it's the only field out there. It's like people, people don't go after a musician and be like, hey, man, your band's only trying to make money. It's right. like, yeah, obviously. Yeah, no, I know. It, it's just, it's so um, anti, I mean, you know, like, like whenever one of these producers come to me and they say, uh, you know, we want you to, you know, don't you want to help us put this thing on and do this Bigfoot because you've been in the field for 50 years. Isn't that, you know, isn't you get your passion from this? And I said, and how much are you being paid for this? And how much per hour are you getting? And you don't want to give me even a little bit for my time. You know, it's like, you have to get in arguments with these people to justify yourself and you feel like a piece of crap because you should get money and, and they they should too, you know, everybody. Right. Artists should get money. Exactly. Writers should get money. Yeah. I mean, you should get money for this program, even though it doesn't cost anything. You know. I yeah. agree. <laughs> <laughs> Call it nine nine o'clock in the desert, you know. Exactly. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There was once a great American named George Henderson. He met a woodland ape or Sasquatch, and despite its dangerous message of environmentalism, became his friend. But when the time came to do the hard thing and send it back into the forest where it belonged, and birds could perch on its shoulder because it was gentle, George Henderson summoned the strength, and by God, he did it. Did it hurt? You bet it hurt. Like a bastard. But he did it because it was the right thing to do. For the Woodland Ape. You think about that. What? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Is that Harry and the Hendersons? You've seen it? This is my life, Jack. Yeah, it's weird. It's, there's this, like, strange... I noticed this a lot in ufology and clearly in Bigfootery too. It's like there's this strange, bizarre, like backwards, like like there's this moral perpetuate or something. I don't know what the word is. I'm, I'm searching for the word, but it's like there's this like 
guilt complex that they, they a lot of people put on you. Oh, you're just trying to sell books. It's like, I wrote the book. I, I want people to read the book. That's, you know. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you, you put in, you know, five years of your life, you write a book, and then, you know, of course you're supposed to go out there and tell people you did it. You want it. But the, the ones that really bother me are, are the new author, the new author that comes along, and he goes to, you know, all of these TV producers, and, hey, hey, have me on your show. I want to talk about this. And so they give away their stuff free, and then some of the rest of us have to make a living off of this. Or, I mean, I'm making a living off of, you know, a few hundred dollars in royalties and my Social Security. That's how I'm making a living. Yeah. I don't feel like I need to be guilty about that. But this, it's the newbies that are being taken advantage of. They appear on these programs for free. They They do it two or three times, and then all of a sudden they wake up in a cold sweat and say, Hey, I've just given away three weeks of my life. I still have to pay my rent. What am I going to do? And they begin thinking, I got to start charging some of these people for my time. And it, it's a, a vicious cycle that I've seen played out in ufology and ghost stories and Bigfoot. You know, it's just really, it does need to change. And I'm hoping the professionalism really will evolve in the field. One would hope so, but given how long these fields have been around it's like it's just interesting to sit back and watch i mean you've been around for decades it's it's uh it's just interesting to see this stuff used to be so fringe it's really crazy to me it's like bigfoot really has become this this iconography that it wasn't way it wasn't when i was a kid it wasn't even like maybe 10 15 years ago it's like really it's it's i don't know it's hard to explain but it's like it's become a symbol that everybody knows, and maybe back like in the A's and stuff, it really it, it was sort of more fringy, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Robert Stack, he would get away with doing a Bigfoot story, uh, a murder, and, you know, a missing person. And it was kind of like that was the fringy, weird thing that you talk about. Right, right. And, and nowadays, you got to come to the table with your Bigfoot story with the theory and with the DNA possibilities and is it Gigantopithecus or Paranthropus and got to make it all intellectualized so much so that some people are actually taking the fun out of it. Um, but but yeah. I mean, it's like, like the museum. We're the only one in the world and people browbeat us because we're a non-profit. We have no you know endowment and we charge $10 for adults and $5 for kids. And they're saying, boy, that's too much money. You're such a little, you know, yes, yes. I mean, yet they can go downtown to the science museum as one exhibit and everybody pays $20 for the children's museum where the children are paying $10. And we have to justify ourselves. So it's almost like it's happened in the museum world too. Yeah. Where we have to think we have to feel guilty. Well, we're not doing that. You know, people can make a choice. They can come to the museum or not. They'll see things there like Jimmy Stewart's letter and Yeti hair. and You know, it's one-of-a-kind stuff. So we really got over that guilt trip that people would do. Or, oh, I don't want to come to your museum because it's only filled with toys. Yeah, that's because you're not reading the exhibits and not looking around. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. It's, it's very funny how people, you know, like I tell some individuals, 
Librarians are the best people to come to museums because they stay for two hours and read every exhibit. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that. Yeah, I was saying this to somebody the other day. That was my one regret with the uh, with my visit last year, which I will rectify when I come up for Labor Day weekend. Is I we we, we were hanging out and I didn't really. I, I got the awesome personalized tour with Lauren. I should have spent more time studying the exhibits. You know, it was kind of like I I had a I had a real catch twenty two there because we were getting toured by you, which was awesome. But it's like, I, 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 there's so much I want to go back and see. So I'm going to be Yeah, that. well, the, the way I usually classically do that, except for friends that want to hang around and just talk to me like you guys did, is I take people through, uh, you know, on these specialized tours, and then I say, okay, now you, you go back through at your own pace and read what interests you. Right, and right. And, you know, then leave. But don't, don't think that you're getting it all from me. I'm just giving an overview. Uh, so you can kind of feel your way through, but then go back. Yeah, we went out like, for lunch and gossiped like. Uh... <laughs> right, right, right. Like we kind of like when we went to Nova Scotia. You know, we, we had that. I, that was a great time. Uh, that was a lot of you fun. You and I, yeah, Stan and Paul uh, Kimball. Kimball, yeah, yeah, and uh, we. I mean, mostly we didn't really spend that much time. At the conference, we learned more in the lunches that we all did and stuff, so that was good. Yeah, yeah. I went out the uh, the second year, too. I think I might be trying to make it this year. It's a nice place. It's gorgeous. It's always, yeah. it's always nice we can do, do – you, yeah, you said you went out – you were in Wyoming, right? Yeah, I did Wyoming, too, at a, a comic book con where they they said that last year they had 13,000 people, and this year they expected twenty. But they made the mistake of having it on the same weekend as Mother's Day, so oh, they geez. only got six six thousand people. But for me, it was—I mean, I've been to every state in the lower forty-eight in Hawaii. But for me, it was different to actually be in a city like Cheyenne for six days because you really—I went to the train museum, I talked to locals, and you know, saw some of the, the weirder sights around there myself, other than just spending. The whole time at the conference. That yeah, I was yeah. There because, yeah, that's uh, a good fun. I didn't realize that, you know, um, that uh, I think Kurt Gowdy was from there and uh, Tom Horn and, you know, different. They showed me where so and so had been hanged on a certain corner. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I just get away from the, the cryptozoology part sometime and just try to take in the local. Like, Little tidbits, like 90 trains come through Cheyenne every day. I mean, what? Wow. people don't know. Yeah. yeah. Kind of really weird stuff. And, and uh, you know, you go to some cities, and I like all of the cultural diversity. So I was, it was really neat to kind of go there and know that the cultural diversity for that town was African-Americans who came out as black cowboys, but also, of course, Native Americans. So it was it was a real surprise. I didn't really uh, know that, you know, there was that kind of diversity there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's cool when you can get a chance to explore a place like that instead of being in the hotel the whole time. But it's, right. it, it was funny. You said that the, I was going to ask if you have like a Stan Friedman sort of roll call, but it sounds like you all 48 lower states and, and Hawaii. So you haven't been to Alaska yet? No, I haven't been to Alaska. So you got to do that. For the uh, the the now of America conference up there for me to go to. I would do like a cruise to Alaska. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we yeah, can organize that. The, 
the best thing is to take a cruise up, and then there's, uh, you know, little tours you can go in. And I know all of the places where the Bigfoot-type creatures have been seen up there, including some great Thunderbird sightings in the lower part of Alaska. Really? So I'd check out, yeah, I'd check out those as well as the Kodiak bear and things like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's interesting. So I, I thought it was interesting what you said about uh, sort of people about Bigfoot being seen in all the different states. It's, uh, I guess, where – I know you said the Pacific Northwest, but there are other areas that you think might really be the domain of these creatures. Um, I mean, like Pennsylvania seems like a, a, a hotbed. And, of course, you know, the Skunk Ape down floor is a whole different thing. But, I mean, are there areas that you think – you know, are promising besides the Pacific Northwest? Well, I think that what I've always felt deep down is the eastern Bigfoot or Wendigo um, really may have some habitat in Quebec and, and Canada, and then they occasionally do migrate down to the, you know, Michigan, Minnesota, maybe some places in Maine. But I don't know if there's real permanent year-round Bigfoot residents in some of those upper northern states. It's much more about movement. Mm. Um, and then uh, if you look at all of the south, there's this whole problem with uh, the skunk ape, the Honey Island monster ape, uh, uh, the booger, as they call it. And these are really apes which have a foot that looks like your hand. And they're more like chimpanzees. Mm. Sometimes, of course, they stand upright. But uh, the, the classic Florida skunk apes that were talked about from the 1940s to the 60s were always smaller, always three foot to, to five feet, hunched over, even having green uh, algae on their hair. Oh, wow. And those, those were all, it was only in the 70s whenever some of the hoaxers came down there and started filming some of their relatives in in gorilla suits that people felt that the Bigfoot were being seen in Florida and, you know, Louisiana and Mississippi. Those were really, that's the cultural Bigfoot that's really contaminated the the rest of the United States, including the South. Mm. Um, So I'm very, very suspicious about a lot of the Southern quote-unquote Bigfoot reports. And even though I I absolutely admire the work of Linda Godfrey. The Dogman reports from Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, to me, those are nothing more than Bigfoot reports that are leaned over roadkill and eating and have little or nothing to do with dogs or werewolves. Interesting. I think that's, that's another cultural contamination that really is changing the field. And it comes out of this excitement that people have to make this new and different. So, uh, you know, our friend Ken Bearhart had a, a dogman conference last year in Defiance, Ohio. Yeah. And that's great, and I'm glad to have, you know, the swag for that to have in the museum and stuff. But I really want, wonder, and I was even on Mysteries at the Museum about uh, – some art that we have that might reflect some of those sightings. But if you look at it from a distance, a werewolf-type creature standing up or leaning over looks like a Bigfoot just with uh, through a different lens. Yeah. Uh, and even, um, what's this, um, 
you know, the Nevada reports of that, uh, the ranch, you know. Oh, Skinwalker. Yeah, Skinwalker. Skinwalkers are, and that I started getting reports of Skinwalkers from native peoples in the 1960s from New Mexico and uh, Arizona. That's merely Bigfoot that just run, and most of the Bigfoot reports from uh, Southern California and the Southwest are usually thinner anyway, reflective of the climate. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I think that people want everything to be alike and, and all to be Bigfoot and all to be all over the country, but I really do think it needs some discrimination between these reports, and you can really kind of begin to understand them uh, based on biology as well as sociology. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think there's a roadie. I, you know, I don't think there's a Rhode Island Bigfoot call. It is called Brody by people that have made that up, but I don't think there's. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's really substantial amount of physical evidence of, of a Bigfoot running around. Anyway, it would be part of the mafia. So. Oh God! There you go. There you go. <laughs> now, now you say Wendigo. I I think I probably have an idea of what that means, but sort of flush that out uh, for me so I know that I know what it means. Well, Wendigo is an Algonquin Indian word for, you know, a cannibal, a Bigfoot-type creature. Uh, and it's got all mixed up because psychologists came along uh, years and years ago, and they decided to diagnose the Wendigo syndrome, whereas if you go out in the wilderness and you start uh, turning black from frostbite and a whole bunch of other things, and you have a Wendigo psychosis where you want to turn into a cannibal and a human being eating another human being, but also killing people. And that, that is confusing to people because the native people, the Algonquin Indians and and others have talked about Wendigo, which is just an Eastern Bigfoot for, you know, 400, 500, 600 years. And it's because the psychological world has taken over the name. then Then it's got confusing for, people doing reports. Right, right. And it's, and the other thing you said that kind of piqued my interest, uh, which maybe I'm wondering if applies to the whole to the to the various creatures as a whole, is that maybe the these these creatures, these animals, or for lack of a better term, that they're that they're migratory. That they're not necessarily like so maybe if somebody sees one in Massachusetts, it's like there isn't a Bigfoot there there isn't a Bigfoot in Massachusetts. There was one it was passing through kind of thing. Is that possible? Yeah, I think for a lot of the Eastern reports, one of the the differences between the Eastern Bigfoot reports and the Western ones, uh, it is a truism that most of the Western Bigfoot are very calm, are very peaceful, are are almost, you know, they've been compared to mountain gorillas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the Eastern reports that you, you really dig into and find out and try to get a whole history of over several decades, like Cobalt, Ontario, has frequent, about every 30 years, there's uh, a kind of a flap of reports, of Bigfoot reports, like they're passing through the area, hmm. and they do it in these waves. But like in Michigan, whenever you dig into some of those reports, like at Sister Lake or, um, you know, uh, Monroe, Michigan, They've had violent interactions with individuals like Christine Van Acker, 
who uh, got a black eye. She was driving with her mother in her car. And the creature reached through her window and, and gave her a black eye, punched her in the eye. Jesus. Uh, the Louisiana creature, Louisiana, Missouri, Momo, uh, that was first seen with a, a dead dog in its arm, dripping blood. Oh, my God. Uh, there's, there's reports of uh, 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 a newspaper guy, a delivery man, one morning uh, in Ohio coming across to Bigfoot crossing the road, and it had a dead, dead animal, uh, once again, dripping blood. And so over and over again, um, like the recent one of the recent films that uh, – Seth Breedlove did uh, a uh, on the Minerva monster, which was in Ohio. It also had violent interactions with dogs. I think that the population density of humans in the East actually make it very uncomfortable for Bigfoot type creatures to stay around for long. Yeah, they yeah. come into an area, they screech, they leave footprints, they kill a little livestock, they kill off some dogs, and then they retreat back into Canada or Quebec, you know, or, or any place up north. Yeah. And and you're right. I think it's seasonal. I, I think uh, very similar to uh, Thunderbird reports where, for instance, in Al- Illinois, we, Mark Hall, the late Mark Hall and I worked on this a lot and looked at the migratory routes where in the spring they were actually coming down into the Midwest, down into the United States, and then in the in uh, I mean the other way around, they would do it seasonally, April, November, you know, one way or another way, yeah. north, south, north, south, just like the big birds do, and I think it's very true with uh, the Bigfoot type creatures too, whereas the, the black panthers, the, the mystery cats, they go east and west uh, quite a bit. And they ah, interesting. And, the, and they don't really care about the weather. Um, they're not affected by the weather the same way Bigfoot would be. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. Is there, you know, I don't know if you know who Peter Davenport is, but he's been around ufology like forever, and he's got the uh, the National UFO Reporting Center. And it's a pretty, okay. it's a pretty exhaustive. It's like a one eight hundred hotline type thing. I guess what I'm wondering is there is there any like clearinghouse for Bigfoot reports? Is there any like one place that people can report these things? Well, I think pretty well established is the BFRO, the Bigfoot okay. Field Researchers Organization, and they have a, a system where you know auditory reports and reports with, uh, and, you know, it's almost like. Close encounters at one, two, and three. They have a, a system there where they try to try to divide it up. And if it's just a, a sound in the woods, they usually don't follow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, I hope not. You know, they have a a bunch of what they call curators or associates where they send out reporters and I mean uh, investigators where they try to delve into it more. But it's um, my problem with. <laughs> Any of those kinds of things, they they really disappear into a database, and they don't identify the eyewitness, and that of course, of course causes problems because then researchers that are trying to double check the report or follow up or do data data variation and uh, correlations, yeah, it's it's hard hard as heck to do it. 
So you can't. So it makes it makes Bigfoot sabermetrics difficult. Is what you're saying? <laughs> yes, exactly. And the other problem, of course, is that we used to. I mean, you're right. I've been in this since March of 1960, mm-hmm. and way back when, you were able to get newspaper articles that would say, you know, John Smith at 123 Longview Place said he reported such and such a creature. Right. And you would track him down. And, you know, there weren't that many people. Ivan Sanderson once told me in 1965, yeah. there was only five people in the country investigating Bigfoot. Well, uh, now, you know, if I had some kind of app on my phone, I could probably press and see that five people up and down this block would be interested in Bigfoot. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. It, there's so many people that once there's a report out there and there's a, a actual case with an address, that person, you know, people are beaten on their door. Well, uh, yeah. That's... Can I ever tell you about the lawsuit that was filed against uh, the book Weird Amer- Weird Ohio? No, that, tell me this story. That, that, well, I wrote uh, I wrote the Bigfoot and cryptozoology and the strange Fortean Earth work stories in that book. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the the folks that were putting those, Barnes & Noble, when they were putting those books together, they did a great job. They'd, you know, have two editors, and then they'd pick one to to three authors. I was one of those authors. Well, all of a sudden, I got this nice formal subpoena and forms <laughs> and say, you know, you guys are being sued, and... We what, 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 Well, what had happened is somebody who owned a house that was haunted said that ever since Weird Ohio came out, that people were coming around and knocking on their door and trespassing. And oh, it God. Was, you know, it was just a, a horror story and a real horror story. Well, we went all the way through the courts. We had to get, you know, the, luckily Barnes & Noble gave us lawyers. It turns out that the people that had written that in the book could clearly show that there were newspaper articles published before the book came out showing these people's address mm-hmm. uh, and that that was the cause of it. So we, you know, I did, the suit didn't last very long, but it, it really told me how things had changed in this country. We used to be able to track down eyewitnesses pretty clearly, but because of litigation, you see less and less addresses in the newspaper and you have less and less claims of trespassing. Ah, that's and, true. You know, harassment and stuff too. Yeah, I but never that, thought of that. But it's it's really changed and that I find is sad. One of the I think happy points about reality T V is especially on this uh, program called Mysteries and Monsters on Destination America. Yeah. I really I really congratulate them because what they have done uh, to try to make their programming a little bit different is they have tracked down eyewitnesses of some of these old famous cases. Uh, you know, some kid that was 12 years old that saw Momo, yeah. all of a sudden they're grown, grown up and they're interviewing them. And um, needless to say, people don't live forever. So they're actually creating major archives of eyewitnesses uh, around some of these cases. Uh, And like, for instance, I was able to interview Linda Scarberry before she uh, died. And and I think that's always great that some of these classic 
stories, uh, you know, are filmed by some of these companies. So it's, I give them uh, five gold stars. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's funny you. It's funny about you're talking about the how there's five Bigfoot researchers and now you can go up and down the block. It's like it's interesting in a way if you look at it. The the ghost thing on TV sort of predated this Bigfoot explosion, but it, it, it's really mirrored it in a lot of ways too. Because now it's like each each sort of state, each sort of like community. You know, different parts of states, they have sort of like Bigfoot groups now that that have kind of sprung up. You know what I mean? I think there's one for Massachusetts called Squatchachusetts, and they had a Bigfoot thing in Western Mass earlier uh, or last fall. Um, so it's like... I was there and I gave a talk, yeah. Oh, nice. There you go. Yeah, so it's like yeah. it's it's becoming very strangely sort of localized. I guess that's good. I guess that means more people are interested, but it's like... Uh, you know, it has its pluses and minuses, but it's an interesting phenomenon, let's say. Yeah, it is. And I, I think that I saw that certainly in the 50s and 60s with UFO groups. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think during the 80s and maybe the 90s, you saw all of these, you know, Minnesota ghost hunters groups spring up. Uh, and I, there's not that many cryptozoologists that's going around to conferences that are uh, what are called paracons. Yeah. Because I, I was a Fortean, identified as a Fortean long before I was a cryptozoologist, people know that I'm interested in strange stories. So I get invited and find out that uh, Jason and Grant said they became ghost hunters because my book, Mysterious America. And, you know, that's really, it feels really good about that. But I also, what's happened is this evolution uh, of ghost hunters really did follow the UFO trend. Uh, the UFO groups really were social networks. Yeah. And now, now we're seeing it with Bigfoot groups because those people are interested in friendship. They're interested in getting outdoors and they're interested in mysteries. So what a better way to do it than through Bigfoot. I mean, you don't, you don't see mystery cat groups. You don't see (laughs) lake monster societies too often. Uh, Over in, I do think that it is happening over in uh, Australia, that there are some groups of people hunting thylacine. Hmm. So that is happening over there. But you're right. I think that uh, they are springing up everywhere, almost every state. And uh, what what I've been amazed by, really in the last 10 years, is as a outcome of that, uh, some of the groups that met locally, maybe monthly or maybe quarterly, all of a sudden decided, well, we're going to do a national conference. Yeah. And yeah. so in the last ten years, uh, I mean, I, there's now a calendar, and you can just type in Bigfoot Conference, and you'll go to the website, and they list all of the conferences that are happening all over the country. And I think there's a good 12 to 20 per year, and it's just getting more and more that they can't even. The weekend that we're doing our conference on you know, cryptozoology, which is Labor Day weekend, there's a, um, out in Kennewick, Washington State, there's a Bigfoot conference, and there's also uh, a habitation conference in Washington, in uh, another part of the Pacific Northwest. So it's just. There's even multiple conferences on the same weekend. And that, I think, is something that people used to avoid because they wanted everybody to only be able to come, come to, to one conference or another. Yeah. yeah. 
And and this year, the 50th year of the Patterson film, uh, Willow Creek, which is a really little town, they're having, you know, they had one uh, in April. They're going to have another one, I think, in August, and then another one in October. Because they're they're certainly taking advantage of uh, the 50th anniversary. and, And they... They actually get enough people to make it worthwhile, and I think there must have been three thousand people. It was just a, it was a, a kind of a vendors conference. There wasn't any, well, there was a couple of speakers inside, but it was mostly, you know, meet the Finding Bigfoot people and and meet Bob Gimlin, and that was about it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's very, uh, it's amazing actually. Yeah, because the UFO. There's still a lot of UFO events, but this, yeah, this, I see a lot of Bigfoot events. It might be because uh, I'm more plugged into the community, but as you're saying, it seems like it's really popped up a lot uh, in the last few years. <laughs> now, you said a, a, a habituation conference. I, if, if I went to a habituation conference and there was no Bigfoot there, I'd ask for my money back. Isn't that kind of the whole point? <laughs> well, you could do your stand-up com- comic routine there. That would be good. I'm sure that would that, go over that, well. That's true. But like in Ohio, where uh, Don Keating used to have conferences 20 years ago, he started out with little groups every week, every month, that were 20 people. Then he did one of these conferences, and there must have been 150 people there. Yeah. Well, now, you know, Mark DeWert, he has a conference there, and he has enough vendors and people going through the vendors. I think he counted 1,000 people last time. Oh, wow. And, and that's just... You know that's like better than funeral directors can get. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it, it's it is interesting to see it. I I wonder if it's getting with the uh, with finding Big, Bigfoot stopping. You know, I'm wondering if this sort of growth of the conferences will follow the baby boomer. You know, are are the baby boomers going to die off and then those conferences will go down uh, you know, in numbers or are we going to have a, a kind of crossover trends where we have, you know, the, the Twin Peaks Bigfoot conference or something. <laughs> well, because no, nobody's really taken advantage of, uh, you know, comic books and uh, Bigfoot or, or anything like that. They, they're so strictly, you know, ghost hunting. So the Paracon has tried to do that a little bit, but I'm usually the only Bigfoot guy, and it's usually all ghost people and then me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's funny. I mean, each field has its own sort of ecosystem in a lot of ways. I remember when we were at that mass monster mash in Watertown, which is famous right. because of the uh, famous because of the the bombing and everything. That's where they found that guy in the boat. Um, uh, right. There was someone there. I don't even remember her name, so I'm not even like I'm not. This isn't really a diss, but she she was on one of these ghost shows, and she was like selling eight by ten photos of herself autographed, and it was like, what is, who who wants to? And she was selling them. People were buying them, and it was like, what is this? How are you? You're not a celebrity. I don't get. But to these to different people, different audiences, they are. It's really, it's really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I mean, it's a comic con that I was just at in Wyoming. You know, there was Billy D. Williams, and he was selling, uh, you know, his pictures for $75. And if, oh, you wow. did that at a, if you did that at a Bigfoot conference, you know, even if you were Cliff or Bobo or Bob Gimlin, 
you would be left laughed out of the room. Yeah, um, only only unless you're Bigfoot. That's about it, right? Right, right. I mean, <laughs> I I bring I I tried that because everybody said, oh, you should do this at Paracons. So I brought some, uh, you know, photographs with the Bigfoot in the background, the one that you saw up in the museum. Oh yeah. And I I said five dollars, you know, and I'll give you a photograph, and it's a five dollar donation to the museum. I couldn't sell one. Oh no! It was ten thousand people there. But uh, what's what's her name? Bet Bet uh, from uh, oh uh, anyway, it was some horror woman that was sitting across from me. Yeah. Uh, and she she could you know just put them out there for forty dollars and sell. Them. So, it wasn't Elvira. Uh, no, it was the one the woman that just died. Betsy um, Betsy. She was in the Elm Street. Oh, I have no idea. Not even. Anyway, yeah, it was one of those people. That, well, but, you, you mentioned know, people so, can sell, sell their photographs. That's all, all the more power to them. Yeah, hey, if, yeah, if you can sell, yeah. Yeah, it's just funny to me. It's like there, there's an audience for everything, so it's it's pretty remarkable. Um, now, in the email you sent me, uh, we were kind of batting around the, the show here. You you mentioned something, and I, it it, it – it kind of I glossed over it in a sense because I don't really you're not familiar with these shows, but it sounds like you have thoughts on this because you said the impact on the return of X Files, Twin Peaks, and the New American Gods on reality programming. So, what 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 sort of planted that seed in your mind to mention that in the email to me? You know, when we're setting up the interview, what's what what do you think is going on with that? Well, I think that um, if you look at those shows, American Gods has never been on TV. But it's really, um, in talking to Neil a little bit, he said that in a future episode, he he was inspired by my book, Mysterious America, to put Thunderbirds, uh, cryptozoological creatures in that, Thunderbirds from, uh, from uh, you know, the Fortean literature. And, yeah. And uh, X-Files, Carter, Chris Carter actually used... Uh, not for the mythos of the alien part, but the, if you look at his stories the first season, every other week or so it was Monster of the Week or, you know, some kind of Fortean phenomenon like frogs dropping from the sky or lake monsters, Hoevelman's Lake. A lot of people pointed out to me that he was using my book and, and other people's books as sort of a roadmap. And now now we're having the return of those. And so I'm wondering if, and Westworld is the other one I was trying to remember, mm-hmm. if there's almost um, a return to uh, existential experimental science fiction mm. uh, and, and that people and the programmers are seem to be getting more interested in that than the reality shows that we just came through that were on Bigfoot or Mysteries at the Museum or Destination America. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to go into reruns, by the way, of Finding Bigfoot. He's going to be on Destination America. Yeah. So people are going to be, you know, have 10 years of reruns of Finding Bigfoot. That, <laughs> to me, says they won't need a new program. Right. Because there's right. actually some kid that was, you know, that's 18 now, when he was seven years old, he wasn't watching Finding Bigfoot. So it's all going to be new to him. Right. right. Uh, and, and so I really think that 
these waves and these trends really are markers. Uh, in my book, Bigfoot, I wrote about how every everybody is really imprinted when they're about 10 to 13 years old. So everybody that grew up whenever um, the Boggy Creek, you know, the legend of Boggy Creek was in the drive-in theaters, yeah. they grew up thinking about Bigfoot in a certain way. Mm. as a real creature that invades you when you're on the toilet. You know, <laughs> that happened in that movie. And then 10 years later, what came along for those other than 10 years old, 10 year olds was Harry and the Henderson. So people became skeptical of Bigfoot. They thought it was a joke. They thought it was unreal. Oh. It would come into your house and crush your, uh, you know, your Davenport or yeah. whatever. And, and it's really different. So, as you track Bigfoot films, uh, you can really see how it changes and it sets up a whole new generation to be skeptical or open-minded or really not even interested. So I'm wondering, as we're coming to this decade-long sort of affection with reality Bigfoot, mm. it's now fading into really fictional shows that are outrageously stupid, um, or like Killing Bigfoot, which doesn't last long because they're so horrible. Right. And then, it, and then the more popular shows for people that are trying to think, and that's really the distinction for me. And like Twin Peaks or X Files or, or you know, Westworld, people are going to be more interested in going the science fiction fiction route for Bigfoot. And I wonder how that's going to paint the paint the you know, the canvas for the future. Yeah. Well, now that you mention it, I'm stunned that there hasn't been a remake yet of Harry and the Hendersons, considering they mine all these old movies for reboots. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I well, hope they don't, because well, I don't want that effect to happen <laughs> to people, but yeah. I'm stunned they haven't revived that, that franchise. Well, I think the, the problem that happened there is that they tried to make it into a TV series, Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that TV series worked for a while, and then they even tried to make it an ongoing exhibit at Universal uh, with, you know, Harry and the Henderson jumping out. I went there one time and saw that, and it was like, wow, this is not going to (laughs) work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think they kind of pushed it to the limit. Yeah, but, you know, I I can imagine there's some executive who's, you know, pressed for an idea, and he's like, "Hey, we this is a well, this is a hit movie, and we got a TV show out of it, and we got a ride out of it. So let's right. let's bring it back, right. you know. So yeah, you, nostalgia's a, do that. A, 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 nostalgia's a hell of a drug. Yes, it is. It is. Well, I think that uh, we'll see some more Wonder Woman, you know, Redux. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's. It's it, it's remarkable. The whole thing's interesting. This has been a great conversation. This is like jazz. We're just bouncing back and forth. I really didn't really bring too much to the table as far as what I want to talk to you about. Now, what about some of these? I've been always really bullish on the Orang Pendek because I feel like uh, through my friendship with Adam Davies that it's, that it's a very promising lead in a lot of ways. Um so do you? How are you? How are you what, do you? what do you think about the creature? I mean, you think it's possible? I feel like it's, if, if there was anything that we were going to get, I feel like we're closer to that one than a lot of these other ones. Yeah. Well, um, in Patrick Weege in my book, uh, 
the field guide to Bigfoot and other mystery primates. That the first edition came out in 1999, and then we re- rebooted it in 2002 because there were so many more discoveries. At the end of the book, I did a, a best bet. You know, what were the the top 10 or 12 of the primates that I thought would be discovered? And you yeah. know. Everybody always hopes Bigfoot or Yeti or different things like that. My number one on the list, and I was very clear about this, uh, was Orang Pindic. I think of all of the hairy hominids that are unknown around the world, that is the one that is going to be discovered within the next 25 years. And I think it's going to be a real uh, you know, earthquake to anthropology. It's going to shake up people who have been so debunking and so skeptical, uh, whether, and I don't think that it's really human-like, I think it's more orangutan-like, but uh, even if it's a a brand new species of orangutan that is mostly upright and runs through the trees and different things like that, uh, I think the evidence is so good. I think the sightings, like Deborah Martyr, uh, who's Mm -hmm. been over there a long time, Debbie, uh, I was able to get her visa for her by being in a university in 1985, and she wanted to go over there to study Orang Pindek as a journalist, and then she became a conservationist. Uh, but that, uh, she once said to me, I've only seen the Sumatran rhino twice, but I've seen Orang Pindek three times. Oh, wow. And I, and I really think that there's something there I, uh, you know, I know that Adam has certainly found the footprints. He's found what he thought thinks is DNA. And so there's some real credible people. There's some real, uh, you know, local people. Even uh, Cliff Bachman has been there with and has identified, you know, eyewitnesses and, and has come up with a footcast from there. Yeah. There is the confusion with the small bear uh, that some people take the footprints of the bear and they mix it up with the rank pin deck. But, you know, we've been through that and uh, Ivan Sanderson even saw those differences. I think that it's clear there's something going on that's totally interesting and totally related to some of the other things like Homo forenses, the hobbits on Flores Island and some of the other reports from Indonesia and even over to Sri Lanka where they have the little people reports. So, um, I'm very encouraged. It's the top of my list. I'm hoping it happens in my lifetime, but even if it doesn't, I certainly uh, am very hopeful. The only problem is, and I started noticing this when MTV came on TV, uh, the the MTV generation, uh, we started having researchers that were into rock and roll and into MTV, and they got no patience. They they thought that you know, <laughs> you're talking the, about me the, now. <laughs> no, no, not, not you. But there was some guy that even wrote it up in the San Francisco newspaper. His name was Kyle, and he he really didn't understand that the pyramids were not built in a day. Yeah. And it takes you know it took 60 years to discover the Mount Gorilla, 75 years to find the first giant panda. It's just not going to be things really quickly with Orion Pindek. And you also have to wait for science. I mean, they've got to write the papers. They've got to have, uh, you know, verification. It, it, 
science moves and academia moves very, very slowly. So right, but I'm, right. I'm, hope, I'm hopeful the rank index is really going to be found. Well, it's uh, I don't have the article in front of me. I mentioned this to Adam Davies, but it's ironic with this thylacine story uh, with Dr. Lawrence. There's also a pair of conservationists that are going to the quote-unquote like lost world part of Sumatra. Uh, there's an article in The Guardian about it about two weeks ago to document sort of exotic species that are there that we know about. But in the article, just with one in one little line, it was like, the area is also said to be home to this creature called the Orang Pendek, and, you know, maybe he's there. So it's like, so there is this, and, and that's very similar to the other study. They're, they're going to put a whole bunch of game cameras, you know, throughout this whole area, and and just to document the animals that are there. So you just never know. I mean, I'd like to see more of these things, you know, I guess you'd have to have a lot of money, but, I, I mean, if you blanketed an area with, with game cameras, I wonder if it would work with Bigfoot, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, the the, the caveat with Bigfoot is that, how oh, well, Bigfoot will never be caught on camera because he can smell the metal or he can hear the clicking. Right, you know, right. Outside our range. So there's always one of those sort of catch-22s, and it may be true. Or The other thing is you've put a lot, if you go into an area and, blanket it with 100 uh, trail cams, you're also going to lose 85 of them because people steal them and sell them. That's true. You'd have to be like, yeah, you'd have to be pretty secretive about what you were doing, yeah. Yeah. Well, right, right. That's, that's what that guy in Australia, Australia said. Yeah, yeah, they have to avoid the yabos, which is, I guess, Australian for fools and clowns or whatever, but, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... I think I do think that if either one of those things, the one in Sumatra or the one in Australia, if either one of those produce anything tangible, I'm I'm really hopeful that that will set about some new interest in trying to approach it that way. Because now I know uh, this dovetails back to what you were saying earlier, because I wanted to ask you about like this DNA thing. We were really bullish about that a few years ago, and nothing really has come from that in a sense, right? I mean, we don't. We've kind of re- hit the wall on DNA, right? Is there anything we can do? Well, I, I don't know if we did or we didn't because Brian Sykes, I'm not even going to talk about Ketchum study. Yeah. That that was really a waste of DNA, as Brian Sykes says in his book. And I was glad he said it. I was glad it was said out loud. But she got 120 samples from around the world and the Nothing came from that, and it got, those samples, of course, got destroyed. And the whole business about, you know, the Bigfoot was evolved from an angel with a, another creature. It, it just it went down a track that none of us should have, all of us should have seen coming and been careful about. Right. Anyway, Brian, right, Brian Sykes got 34 samples or so. Most of them came back known species. But if you read his book extremely careful, carefully like I did, I noticed that uh, a sample of a Yeti, I mean a sample of a Bigfoot from the Pacific Northwest links up with some DNA from humans uh, in Central Asia. And that's worth noting and pursuing. The sample of the Amas 
which links up to some DNA from Africa is also worth pursuing. And then the other one was the, um, the Pambouchet hand. Now, the Pambouchet hand is the one that I got very involved with, with Tom Slick and Peter Byrne and all of those folks mm-hmm. got that sample in 1959. That's the sample that Jimmy Stewart, uh, after Peter Byrne stole it from the monastery, or let's say picked it up from the <laughs> drunken llama, and then put it in his backpack, walked into India, hooked up with Jimmy Stewart and his wife at the hotel. Then he put that in, Jimmy Stewart put that in his luggage and got it back to uh, England to study by Osmond Hill. That sample was resurfaced a few years ago, and they tested it, and they said it was human. So nobody paid any attention to it because they thought this was a 350-year-old bone of a llama instead of at the time in the 59 everybody said no this is a yeti we need to test it but we you know back then they didn't have dna they just looked at it and said it looked like the meta uh, the metatarsals of a neanderthal right so it was very very exciting what happened with Pete, with um with brian sykes he retested it with new uh possibilities where you could get rid of contamination Mm -hmm. and he actually found that the human that was being identified on that bone was actually from an individual one specific individual by the name of Peter Byrne. Oh wow really? Who had had picked it up who had handled it, given it to the scientists and it was people were doing a false negative a false positive of saying it was human. It wasn't human there's something else there. So what I'm saying is that if you look through that whole book and the whole DNA study, I'm very excited by it because we need to restudy the Pambouchet hand, the finger bone, because it could tell us that there's something there that's unidentified, that's some unknown hominid. Um, back, in, back in the day in 59, they had this uh, test where they found the eggs of a parasite that was only be identified with a new primate. So there was already hints that they were finding unique things that never could be pursued too deeply in 59. But here we are in an age where we could go deeper into that bone and find out. Because Brian Sykes was actually the person that first identified Neanderthal DNA. Right. So he has a has a very credible history of, of doing good work. Well, where is where, that? There's an interesting question. Where is that hand now? Well, the, the hand was stolen after it appeared on Unsolved Mysteries in 1991. Somebody came along and stole the whole rest of the hand. Oh, what? He had. Uh, now Peter Byrne had taken the bone that got tested on a piece of skin. But then after it appeared on TV, on NBC, uh, yeah, it got stolen from the monastery. So Because there's this whole underground uh, market uh, in antiquities. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that was like one-of-a-kind piece. Yeah, so on somebody's mantle, probably in, you know, Saudi Arabia, there's somebody there with a hand of a Yeti. 
Well, we need that hand. Somebody send it yeah. to the International Cryptozoology Museum. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, if anyone finds a weird, a weird uh, shriveled hand like in their grandparents' uh, <laughs> attic. Yeah. No. I don't know. Send a picture first. Lauren doesn't want a whole bunch of dismembered hands being mailed right. <laughs> to Portland. Yes. Well, I've got fecal material in the in the mail, and that was pretty disgusting. <laughs> it actually ruined. Hey, the listen. Whole how many thing. times do I have to apologize for that? <laughs> oh man! All right. So let's we'll do the wrap up here. We're in like the last okay, 10, great. ten minutes. Uh, CryptoZoologyMuseum.com is uh, where people can go to find out about the museum, and uh, it is at Four Thompson's Point Road and the, and the conference, of course. I was going to get to that. Don't worry. It's at uh, Four Thompson's Point Road, and as Lauren was saying earlier, folks, this is uh, I'm excited to get back up there. Uh, Labor Day weekend for the conference because uh, it was it, you could tell when I got up there I can't remember when exactly you opened it when did you open in Thompson about a year ago you said right yeah July first yeah yeah so I I was there in August so uh, about two months after it opened and you could tell just from looking around that this was a place that was on the grow and I'm looking forward to getting up there and getting a look at it you know the whole the whole uh, you know, the whole setup, the whole area, because you could tell it was going to be a real bustling place. And based on everything I've seen just from the museum, it certainly seems that way. So I'm looking forward to getting up there. And I'm, like I said before, I'm really psyched that, you, you know, you guys are sort of like this anchor of this place and getting the respect you deserve. And, and, and I'm amazed every time I see these stories, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm just amazed and so happy for you that, like, you know, today's show, I can't even go down the list. You know them better than I do. All these mainstream national outlets talking about the museum, it's its well-deserved and long overdue for you to uh, get the recognition of of uh, this place and, and how awesome it is and, and that people really are, are finding it and checking it out. Well, thank you, Tim. Appreciations. And, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, like I said, I'll be up there. Oh, one more, I want to ask you one more thing about the Wessie. Do you have the, what do you have from Wessie there? Do you have that big skin they found? Yeah, actually, the police department finally turned his, turned the, the skin over to us because they wanted it in a, a nonprofit museum where it would be shown all all the day, every day. So, actually, it's it's up on the wall right now. But we've noticed that because the the skin is brown and it's on natural wood, we're going. I'm going to redo it and put it under plastic and put it lower down. So. Uh, like students and and everybody can see it in a better way. Yeah, but yeah, it's, see that. it's twelve feet long. And wow. They they never found the body yet, but we're waiting sort of with bated breath when it really heats up here to see if it's uh, going to come back. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing the articles toward the end of the year where they're like, "No way, is it? It's dead now if it's around." So I'm kind of I'm hoping that it makes an appearance again just to get the last laugh on. <laughs> right. <laughs> on the right. skeptics, but. Um, yeah, it's it's really it's a magical place, folks. It's really really awesome. And like I said, all these people that are like talk to me and they say, "Oh, it's on my bucket list. I want to go. I want to check it out so bad." People from around here, Labor Day weekend, folks. They're rolling the red carpet out for you on an awesome event with this conference. And uh, you know, I get I got to lock it in, but I'm like 99% sure I'll be there. So okay, uh, I'm looking well, forward you know, to it. And all of those other people were open year-round, and we're open six days a week. We're only closed on Tuesdays. So many museums close on Mondays. We're the only one in Maine to be open on Mondays. Interesting. Why are so many museums closed on Mondays? 
I think it's their day to resupply and clean up. And for us, uh, you know, people need an alternative. So here we are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So if, you, if you've already committed to going to your nephew's barbecue on Labor Day weekend, <laughs> you can get up to the museum anytime. Just go to the website and check it out. And it is it, – I can't put it over enough. It's awesome. I really – I I wish uh, – I'm going to try and make it more of an annual trip for me because I had such a good time last year, and, and I really think folks should check it out. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming back on the show, Lauren. I know you're incredibly busy, and, and uh, you know, so giving me two hours of your time, it's really, really appreciated. And I loved this conversation because we just, just went where the road took us, and I really, really enjoyed yeah. it so much. Right, the jazz of cryptozoology. Exactly. That's what I'll that's what I'll tell folks when I post it. And uh, that's it. You got another website you want to plug, or is that good, uh, Kurt? No, no, no. I I had fun, lots and lots of fun talking to you, Tim. So it's great to touch base again. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, man. Thank you very much. You can. I guess you can just hang up. We're all good, and uh, we'll call all it right. night here. Thank you. thank you very much again. I really appreciate the conversation. Okay. Night, night. Good night. There you go, folks. That was Lauren Coleman talking about all kinds of cryptozoology stuff and the Twilight language uh, material as well. Just great stuff. I love talking to Lauren Coleman, and uh, i i didn't want to uh, I didn't want to embarrass him, but it's just been such a thrill to have him as a friend of the program and a personal friend for all these years. It's uh, it's really been great. He's been kind of like a mentor to me, somebody I can email or call and ask for advice and stuff. And as I said, when I went up there last year, we got to go out for lunch and kind of talk shop about the business of the paranormal, which we really got into a lot tonight, and I thought that was awesome and uh, interesting and really enlightening. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in there for people who are in this field just starting out or people who have been in it for a long time, because I learned a lot of things just now talking to Lauren sort of about how to make your way in this crazy field and deal with a lot of the, uh, you know, the weirdness of it all and trying to make a life in this, you know. It's a special type of uh, person, a special breed of people that, you know, go from consumers to producers. And, uh, you know, Lauren's been doing it for decades. I've been doing it for over a decade now. It's uh, It can be a toil but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun at the times, like tonight, when you're talking to somebody like Lauren Coleman. So, uh, like I said, I can't put him over enough. He's the man. And, folks, go to the museum. If you get a chance, you want to check out the museum. It is really awesome. The British lady's in my ear now. So uh, we, we plugged the website numerous times, so you know how to get to it. And I guess that's it. So thanks to all the folks who tuned in on the live show. And the folks in the chat room, Alligator, Digger Dog, Jim Lydica, uh, thanks for your uh, insights as we went along tonight. And uh, we'll do the plug for next week's show. We're going to try and get it out of, get it, get it done within the live cast here. Uh, next week on the program, June 13th, 2017, the uh, amazing and indefatigable and prolific Nick Redfern returns to BOA Audio. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about his new Roswell book. Uh, we're going to get into, I'm sure, sort of like that, um, I forget the name, the Collins Elite, uh, demonic alien theories. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into cryptozoology. It's probably going to be a lot like all the shows so far this season uh, where we just jam, man. We just jam and cover uh, whatever's on my mind uh, next week, next Tuesday night. So, And, and hopefully... Like tonight's show, no politics. 
get away get away from the craziness uh for a few hours and and get into the weirdness here on Banal of America. Uh yeah, so that's it. Next week on the program, Nick Redfern, nine PM Eastern time. That's June thirteenth. And uh yeah, he has a new Men in Black book that came out as well. So I, I love the Men in Black. We're gonna get into that also. So all kinds of this all there's so much stuff I could talk to him about. A lot like uh tonight's conversation with Lauren. Tons of different topics that we can cover and I'm sure we will. So until then, this is Tim and all. Thanking you for listening and signing off.